I'm Valerie Earnshaw. I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with the Natalie Brousseau. Natalie Brousseau. <laughs> Natalie, Natalie Brousseau. Doctor, excuse recent, me. Recent. Doctor. Recent. I, there's so many other things to be <laughs> amazed with Natalie about and so proud of her for that somehow that, that escaped my mind. But more importantly, Natalie's research focuses on how stigma and other social determinants of health impact treatment outcomes among people living with HIV and substance use disorders. So maybe you can tell from our high levels of enthusiasm that Natalie recently graduated from our lab. So Carly and I have been working with Natalie for the past four years as she got both her master's and then her doctoral degree. And we are so terribly sad to see her go. Devastated, I think is the word that I would use. Okay, we're devastated. (laughs) Natalie go. But she is off to really tremendously great things. She has a postdoctoral fellowship lined up at the University of Connecticut with doctors Lisa Eaton and Seth Kalichman from season two. So we are also tremendously excited for all of the great things in her future. Right. But as if letting Natalie go wasn't sad enough, we also have to let our listeners know that this is our last episode of the season. So if you want to stay updated about future episodes, please follow us on Instagram at Sex Drugs Science and hit the subscribe button on whatever app you're using to listen. We very much hope that you enjoy this conversation with Natalie Brousseau. We hope that you enjoyed this season and we hope to connect with you next summer for another season of Sex, Drugs, and Science. Dr. Brousseau, welcome to the show. Woohoo! <laughs> Carly and I have an ongoing joke that you have listened to zero of the podcast <laughs> episodes, despite being in our lab. Zero of, I guess we have 13 or 14 out. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. I've had, I've definitely had four. Four, four. Yeah. four in the tank. All right. Well, I feel like 14 hours of podcasting is a lot when you're working on busting out your doctorate too. Hey, so. that's true. Yeah. Just, also like, I can't imagine anyone would want to listen to 14 hours of their dissertation advisor <laughs> talking to them <laughs> or talking in the background. They're like, enough already. Yeah, I think the last thing Natalie wants to do in her leisure time is, is hear more to of us. me. Yeah. yeah. Fair, fair. Well, well, Dr. Brousseau, doctor, as of like two weeks ago, you just defended your dissertation. So this is like a celebration podcast Hi. recording. So I'm super excited. We have gotten several requests from folks who listen to talk more about the work that our lab does, which formed part of the basis for your dissertation. So we're going to use today's episode as a little bit of an opportunity to introduce you to the Dr. Natalie Brousseau and also talk a little bit more about what our lab does. So starting with Dr. Brousseau. So you were born and raised in Delaware, native Delawarean. Native here. Yeah. (laughs) It was amazing. There's no better place in Delaware. Everybody knows everyone. Yeah, Yeah. that is true. And yeah, I've been in my comfort zone, just kind of stuck around. Okay. Yeah. yeah you went to uh, University of Delaware for undergrad. I did. Yep. So went there. I think I did early decision. Oh, okay. You're like, <laughs> like UDs most good Delawareans. Only, <laughs> only choice. That was when they were starting to say, oh, it's getting hard. It's oh, getting hard okay. To get into UD. It's not a guarantee anymore. So I did that and I got in with psychology and pretty much stuck with that. Well, eventually my second year in, they got like speech path 
and oh yeah, okay, kind of broaden their scope. So I switched to cognitive science. So that's where my BS is in cog sci, but I also have psychology under the umbrella of like linguistics too. So it's just like a whole big meld, yeah, of fun things. A lot of brain, yeah. a lot of brain science, mm-hmm. yeah. So at some point in the mix, one of my favorite stories about you as an undergrad is you go to meet the Roberta Golenkoff, who is a big deal researcher in College of Education and Human Development, which is our college. She's in School of Ed. And you RA, you were a research assistant in her lab for, I don't know, how long was that? It was at least a semester, right? It was a, oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. I started sophomore year. Okay. And worked till after I graduated. So it's like, <laughs> oh, wow. Probably three years. With okay. Her. And it was great. That was because of my dad. <laughs> he yeah. read her book and was like, look, you have like, a badass at University of Delaware who is doing big, big things. Like you said, I think she's the head of education. She's also in psychology. She's in CogSci where I was in linguistics. So she just has, she did all the things I did. Mm -hmm. She does it all. I went to her lab and wrote her a little email informal as a sophomore, had no clue. And she said, come in, I'll interview you. I went in in like the summer, sat down with her. She was so nice in her New York accent Mm, and great. mm -hmm. And she's had this lab since like the 70s called the Infant Language Project. Well, now it's called... Child's Child's Play Learning and Development Lab today. Yeah. Child's Play Development Learning, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what they did there. Yeah. So just kind of focusing on children, how they develop. And all their social interactions and things they do with play and fun things like that. So it was was eye-opening to see research in this background of things you're not always exposed to. So she really started me on my path Uh of research. She told me, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to do it. You should really look into it. She was just a great mentor Mm -hmm. in the background, encouraging everything. That's pretty amazing. I mean... Roberta Golenkoff is wonderful. She's like a great mentor to me as well as like a newer faculty member at the university, but she is not telling every undergraduate that she sees that they are <laughs> going to be a doctor. So to have this BFD researcher tell you that like you're going to be a doctor is pretty incredible. I know. So we used to have weekly meetings and we were all sitting around this huge table with all her postdocs and a few doctorate students. And like she had the best postdocs, like she, you know, she had people Mm -hmm. applying all the time. And there's just a few of us undergrad. And she was like, I want to write a paper, you know, about X, Y, and Z. I forget what it was even (laughs) about. And she was like, who's going to do it with me? And I was the only one to oh, raise wow. my hand. I was okay. like a sophomore undergrad and had no clue what I was taking on. <laughs> and she looked around the table like, really? <laughs> this is the only one uh-huh. who wants to help me out here? Yeah. And she's like, all right, we're going to do it. It was like a rejoinder for something wrong with the paper she read. <laughs> oh, okay. So you, I didn't realize this. So you... Worked on a paper with Roberta when you were an undergrad. I at least worked on it. I, n- I don't know, you don't what, know happened. what happened to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been Fair. that bad that she was like, yeah, no, this isn't That's all right. not going anywhere. <laughs> well, we're all super grateful that she encouraged you because then you stuck with the University of Delaware and you joined our department, Human Development and Family Sciences. And I actually remember meeting you. I don't know if you remember this, yeah. but I came to do my interview and that was like, 
April 2016, I gave my talk, and then you and another graduate student came up after and introduced yourselves, which was really neat. Especially, you know, those those interviews are like two days of of a whole lot of torture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So they're long. So that's always a nice little break. Yeah, to meet people who like want to work with you. Yeah, it was cute. (laughs) So it was nice. I totally remember that. And that was something I was so excited about to have you come in because Mm. our department was really in its infancy in my interests, especially around like substance use disorder. And you were bringing stigma into the mix. And these are all things that were so interesting and exactly what we needed in our department to kind of broaden from just child development Mm. to human development in general and Mm -hmm. social determinants of health and all these things. Well, I'm going to cry soon. (laughs) (laughs) Waterworks of an episode. Well, that's really nice. Yeah. So for folks who aren't as familiar with our department as others are, I can't imagine why not. We have a really strong program in early childhood. Yeah. So I would be a little bit of a different duck coming in. <laughs> the wild card. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it was within my first year there also that I like, I snagged you. So by the end of that year, I snagged you for some summer work mm-hmm. and you and Carly start on your first team science activity, which was interviewing people living with HIV through the state of Delaware about their experiences with stigma. Right. And I was saying to Valerie earlier that I don't know if you remember, but we hadn't actually met yet, but we knew that we were doing the work. And I was like, well, I'm staying at my grandparents' beach house if you want to come. And then like, as soon as you were like, yeah, that's cool. I was like, oh my God, wait, what if she's terrible? And now I have to live with her and I don't know this person at all. Like, what if I just come home from a long day and don't want to see her at all? But it ended up being actually super fun. It was like adult camp. We did fun things during the day, (laughs) ate way too much pizza at night. Like, all the activities. Oh, so many activities so many were done. Activities. Yeah. So yeah, that was, was also our origin story as well. Yeah, I, I just thought the listeners would like to. Uh, the Little Princess. Oh, my God. No, it was The Secret, Secret Garden, Garden, though. Yeah, oh. that is right. Oh, that's <laughs> such an, for God, that is such an odd movie that we both somehow had in our childhood. Okay. She was like, wait do you by any chance want to watch this? I was like, oh my God, no, but yes. And it was as bad as we remember okay. it being. Pretty bad. Yeah. Was it a VHS also? It was, yep. We had a yep. rewind. Yep, sure was. Rewind. Make sure you rewind it every time. <laughs> just in case anyone else wants to watch Dumb The Secret that. Garden. <laughs> well, I just really love the idea of Natalie like transitioning from like the child's play lab to <laughs> HIV stigma in Delaware because it's a very different population that you're working with. And I think this was also your first time doing qualitative interviews, right? Yeah, 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 it was. It was both yeah, of ours, right. actually. Yeah. So, what was that like? Because we did some training, but then you guys, then it was all you yeah. with a new population of folks to work with through I the remember, state. I was really nervous. I was like, I don't know what I thought it was going to be like, but I remember thinking like it, the same level of like nerves as a job interview. Did you have the same experience at all? Yeah, I definitely think going in and like sitting down in our backroom office, whatever was available and telling nurses before, you know, everybody kind of walk in like, Hey, we're from university of Delaware and we're, we're allowed to be here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you have all these people that you have to go over to recruit and be like, tell me how you feel about living with HIV. Do you mind? Like it feels super weird to do if you've never done it before. Totally. Yeah. And we nailed it. We did. 
that's pretty great. I mean, I think we did a pretty great job. We the best thing this. about this team is how modest we are. <laughs> I mean, for two people that have never done oh, it before, I, I think it went all right. No, people yeah. really opened up to both of you. Really I mean, it was pre- it's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, some people opened up more than I think we would like to have had them open up. But it was it was <laughs> yeah, a good time. Great, they're yeah. really super interesting to talk to. And yeah, had some emotional and great experience to share and some good stories. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Like the one where learned a lot. Yeah, we had a woman that when we asked her the question about sexual orientation was like, what did you just ask me? Like all sorts of insulted. So I had to try and explain it to her. And afterwards she was like, Oh no, no, no. I just use my toys. You can just write that. And this was on our first day, the first day of data collection. I was just like, I don't, this was not one of the curveballs Dr. Earnshaw threw me when we were training for this. Like, uh, all right, he'll just end the record now. You're like toys. Yep. Yeah, okay. I, I guess that, that will be other for sexual orientation. For first to self-describe. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was only the beginning of of long several yeah. years, Carly, for you having to like break down the these questions and surveys well, that yes. I have included and and try to be yeah. like, well, this is what this means. Or right. yeah. I know. Well, luckily I had Natalie for all that too. To mm-hmm. be like, mm-hmm. you know, lucky for you. Oh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have known that in this emotional survey of your experiences, the stigmatizing <laughs> responses, the hardest question was, "What's your sexual orientation?" God, and your boy, race. Howdy, did that throw people? Yeah. Race actually does also, mm-hmm. but sexual mm. orientation, people are like, I don't know if they think we're asking for sexual history. Like, oh, they think okay, that that's, yeah. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I mean, you'd be surprised at how much that question does not land. Like, and people get so offended. Mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I need to take it back for more, like, <laughs> revising. I was about to say, what's well, the meaning? You know, once I explain it, people are like, oh, but oh, okay, you know, yeah. uh-huh. which, usually that's one where they get, even on the iPad, they're like, what? (laughs) Sexual what? Yeah. Excuse me now. (laughs) How is this related? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. All right. Well, that was also though, you know, as I'm thinking about it, Natalie, like one of the first papers that you wrote with our like data, with our group, you had already written another paper, but it was one of the first times where you took things that we were studying and you put on this like HDFS, human development and family sciences, like lens to it, applying the stuff you were learning in class and blew my mind a bit (laughs) because you did a really nice job. Delaware is a retirement state and you did a really nice job looking at the differences between the experiences of older people living with HIV and younger people. And one of the things that our community partners talk a lot about is like, you know, folks are asking for these social support groups and then no one's ever showing up for them. And some of your analyses ended up landing on the observation or the insight that, you know, older folks living with HIV were, were asking for more social support and social connected with other folks living with HIV, but younger people living with HIV were like, Nope, got it. Like they have their own friend network or networks. They don't really feel like maybe they are connected with people living with HIV, but they certainly don't feel like, the organizations need to further connect them. And I thought that was a great observation because it helps to explain why some people aren't showing for that when it is offered. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, age is one of those things that you don't really think about as a researcher. You just kind of have it as a a control or a covariate Mm -hmm. in the background. But if you think about the development of HIV as a, a disease and what these people went through 20 plus years ago in being diagnosed versus being diagnosed today when it's treatable, it's not a death sentence. 
it makes sense that their experiences are just totally different. Yeah, that's definitely what we are seeing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this study with folks living with HIV in Delaware ends up then hopefully being like a nice setup or training ground for you to level up into you disclose, which is the primary study that the two of you have been working on for, I think it's been three years. It has 2018. May. I thought, yeah, something like that. 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. Somewhere thereabouts. So. Yeah, it was right after you graduated. Right. Me, and I don't remember what year that was. So. <laughs> okay. It's been work. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. All right. So I thought I'd give a little bit of a background on this study for folks. So I started doing work related to stigma and substance use disorders and a little bit around disclosure. And disclosure is, as we've defined it in our study, sharing something new about yourself with someone else for the first time. And in this context, it's that you're in recovery from a substance use disorder or that you have a history of a substance use disorder or you're in treatment, really like anything related to substance use or substance use disorder. So this was something that I became interested in when I was working in Boston before I got to Delaware. And I was doing really like a stigma focused study, but within that, we would always ask people, well, who knows about your substance use disorder or your treatment? And then we would go on and ask them like, how did they respond to you? Are you getting stigmatizing reactions or social support or, you know, supportive reactions? And so the disclosure wasn't a focus of the study. It was kind of like alongside, but I, or it was, you know, just, we asked people about it just as a way to get to stigma. But as we were talking to people, I was like, these, experiences of disclosure are all over the board. Like some of of them didn't go so well. And at the same time that I was doing that, I had a friend who disclosed to me that they were going into treatment and it was like a textbook disclosure. They said, your friendship means a lot to me. I'm going into treatment. I'm telling you because I want your support. And it blew my mind because I was like, did someone yep. teach you how to do this? And like I mean, they set you up for such a home run there. Yes. Yeah. There's like nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's right. nothing you can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing you can do in response to that after being told what a good friend you are, how supportive you are, but be supportive exactly. and friendly. Yeah. So it made me think like, oh, well, maybe this is something that we can teach people to do. And when would someone have learned how to do this? You know, like this isn't something you're going to get like in middle school or I don't know, you're not going to get this in other places. So I wrote a grant to study how it is that people disclose that they have a substance use disorder or that they're in treatment. And then part two was to develop a little baby intervention to help people to do it. So that study got funded in Delaware. And luckily, we had already done this study together with people living with HIV. I knew what good research chops you both had. And so I recruited you into this study, which we called You Disclose. Because I think, Natalie, was it you who pointed out how we need to name things? Do you want to explain that? (laughs) I think that was coming from, that was an experience from Roberta too, just learning how to brand things and making your study recognizable. So we put UD for University of Delaware and we're trying to think of a UD word. So you disclosed it. It was perfect. It was Natalie's idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
like all the best things in our studies are. Carly, we're so tanked with her leaving. Oh my gosh. Okay. So a little bit of background because what we're going to do is walk through the findings from Natalie's study, which, you know, we're about a week or two out from her dissertation defense. So hopefully she hasn't like completely wiped out the past (laughs) four years of her life. (laughs) But the way that this went was you two camped out essentially at our local substance use disorder treatment clinics. Right. These are places where people are going in to receive medications, mostly for opioid use disorders. Yep. So they're going in either every day, once a week or monthly. Mm-hmm. And so you're camped out and you would ask someone or people were eligible to participate if they were planning to tell someone new in the next three months, you know, anything related to their substance use disorder treatment. And so then essentially they would go into a back room with one of you two. They would sometimes both of us, sometimes Sometimes a closet. Yeah. Right. Literally sometimes a closet or uh, the lunch room. Yeah. Yeah, The the lunch room. Yeah. And they would answer some questions, some survey questions like on an iPad and they would have a conversation with you. They would do a qualitative interview to tell you about how they think it was going to go, why they were thinking about disclosing. And then after three months, they would come back and they would tell us about whether or not they disclosed and if they did disclose how it went. Right. And so they did a bunch of, they did like a combination of surveys and interviews. Yes, it is like a little bit of a back and forth there. Yeah. <laughs> it was good though. I mean, it was good. Yeah. They yeah. kept you on your toes. They kept us on our toes. Yeah. Actually, Natalie stopped me from getting beat up once. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I got a little saucy back with someone that was getting mm, saucy with me and that okay. quickly regretted that decision. And Natalie was like, I'll be right there. And like came in and <gasps> saved the oh, day. Yeah, Do you remember cause she that? wasn't, I remember this too, yeah. because Natalie, I thought, Natalie wasn't at the clinic. No. Nope. You called her. Yeah. Okay. First off, let's all reflect that when stuff is happening during data collection, Carly does not call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just she calls Natalie and she's like, I need backup. I mean, Where's Natalie? Well, yeah. if it, I needed, you know, backup for a fight. Yeah. And I mean, with okay. all due clearly, respect. Clearly. Bouncer. <laughs> I'm going with Natalie. Fight. Yeah, that's fair. I see that. No, yeah. it was just also Natalie was closer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it was. Also, yeah. you don't want to have to call your boss and be like, I messed up to such a degree that someone's about to hit me. So you call <laughs> that's great. Like the one, the boss right below that and yeah. see how that goes. <laughs> so always an adventure at the clinic. But my impression is, though, that overall, lots of fun. Yeah, and yeah. You're happy to be back I, there, right? Absolutely. After a year still, away during COVID. Like the best time I've mm-hmm. ever had. It's such a an amalgam of beautiful people and like beautiful, different, such different experiences that like, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Every day is totally different. I have never, ever been at work there and thought, man, this is boring. Like that's never (laughs) been a thought that has come across at all. And it's Mm -hmm. not, it's just so exciting and changes all the time. And you get to meet new people. And the other unique part is being a Delaware resident my whole life also is Mm -hmm. that like, you see people that are actually in your community and you get to serve them or at least feel like you're helping them out too. So even if, you know, they're people you don't know, it still feels like just cool work. I just love it. Yeah. yeah. Some of these people, this is like the worst day of their life. Right. And they're yeah. taking time to talk to you mm-hmm. and you feel like you are helping. Right. You know? Like any little bit of help is like doing 
something for them. And they love just being able to talk to somebody who wasn't like jumping down their throat or judgmental. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually I was telling Valerie earlier this week. So for the listeners, we had a pause between phase one and phase two, we'll call it. And so I wasn't in the clinic for a while. And when I came back, it's like every day someone comes up and they're like, cool, but where's Natalie? And I'm like, well, Natalie's actually a doctor now. And I'm serious. And so many people are like, and I, I always say, I'm like, well, she's a doctor now. So she's mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> she's off doing these big things. Yeah. Like, you know, and they're all so happy, but it's cool. I mean, you know, you can't help but sort of people see your face and you're talking to them about some things, you know, like if the disclosure doesn't go very well and you're talking to someone about things that are yeah. pretty personal. Yeah, like exactly. But it brings you together. Yeah, it really mm-hmm. does. Yeah. We were familiar faces. Like greet we were kind of the yeah. greeting. Yeah. We greeted it. Hey, oh, our yeah. desk was in the center of the room that they walked into yep. first. So we yep. knew names, we knew people coming in. Yeah. And we were just kind of high and mighty at our desk. Yeah, for- they might have known our names if I ever remember to wear my name tag. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting because you both just kind of like hung out there for a while. The first time (laughs) it took like a long time, like we were slow to start recruiting and that makes total sense. Like you're two new people. You want to, you want to have people tell you about you're right. I mean, this could be the worst day of their life. And then maybe you're wanting to talk to them about like, for example, their mom, calling them an asshole and kicking them out of the house for being in treatment, you know? And so like, yeah, that takes like a lot of trust and a relationship. And so what's been really interesting though, Natalie, is that, so it took you guys, you know, a little bit of time to get folks to warm up, but Carly was in there for like two days and has already like enrolled like 15 people for the new yeah. phase of our study. <laughs> it helps because all of our old friends, well, yeah, a few repeats, but all of our past participants well, are like, oh, Carly, you know, oh, so people yeah. are like, oh, how do people know you? What are you doing? Why are you sitting at the front yeah. desk? You know, if oh, I don't yeah. stop okay. them before. So uh-huh. yeah, it's definitely quicker. Yeah. They recognize the new phase. Yeah. We also in. showed up. I mean, like just about as green as green could be. Like, I'm pretty mm. sure I had a leather briefcase and oh my gosh, I was probably in like a <laughs> so whole ass business suit. <laughs> it's like, it was just like, would you guys like to tell me your secrets? And they were like, no, not at all. Like avoid that girl yeah, at the front right? desk. This so FBI looking. Right. Girl. Yeah. So we toned it down, wore some jeans and, yeah, and once we hit the ball, it, it <laughs> got there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just really enjoying this vision yeah. of you in a suit with a briefcase asking At for like, people's secrets. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. That's basically what we were doing. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, she, she'll, she'll take your secrets right there. <laughs> yeah. She's she's come, come, yeah. come with us to this creepy closet in the back. It's not right? an official yeah. room. We don't work here. Like, <laughs> Life may all. or may not work. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. It's there. fine. All right. Well, nonetheless... We got some good data, yeah. which formed Natalie's dissertation. So for folks who aren't familiar with the process, if you're a PhD student, you take a bunch of classes, you take a, maybe a comprehensive exam, which is you know essentially like an exam on everything. And Natalie did so well her year, her semester, that there was like ringing endorsement from Ooh. the faculty about how much she rocked it, which was very cool. You don't always get that. <laughs> and then you do a big research study. So what Natalie did was to write three different papers or basically do three different analyses with the data 
And then that becomes her dissertation. So the first study was about like disclosure experiences focused specifically on methadone. Mm-hmm. And this was a qualitative study. So you were focused more on the data from the interview portion when people were talking to you and to Carly. Right. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you expected and what you found? Yeah. So I was looking basically at people who disclose their medication use. So for people who don't know, when you are living with an opioid use disorder, a lot of people here were taking methadone or some type of medication that could help them buy some time, establish uh, new life patterns, reestablish their relationships. And this was kind of their treatment. I'll just say too that we talked a bunch about these different medications on the episode with Scott Hadland. So I'll plug that a little bit. But yeah, I just want to underscore that, that withdrawing from an opioid like heroin or fentanyl or maybe a prescribed opiate is really, really rough. (laughs) And so these medications can be helpful to prevent withdrawal symptoms and yeah, just kind of ease people into recovery. So methadone has been around for a lot for a long time and it's been well researched. Yes. Yeah. So clearly Scott Hadlin was not one of my four episodes of this. Oh. <laughs> I would not have expected you to be plugging the other episodes. That's that's Carly and my yeah. job. Yeah. Uh, we know you haven't listened to any. You don't have to pretend with okay. the four. <laughs> it was two. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So people were, some people were disclosing that they were in treatment and other people were disclosing that they're taking this medication, either a methadone or kind of a, a newer version called buprenorphine. So that was kind of what we talked about. What I got their experiences from was just to characterize what these disclosures look like and if they were different. And so we expected that they were probably going to be a bit different because of their medications. Methadone has been kind of established and there's some literature that it's it's highly stigmatized against. But this newer kind of drug, buprenorphine, we don't know as much about, although we think it's kind of similarly stigmatized. It could also be for some people seen as maybe a better alternative because of some of the components that can make it so that the methadone doesn't have. So basically, we wanted to see if they were different, how these disclosures looked, and whether people knew what these kind of medications were and were able to be supportive. And I think that one of the reasons we were interested in, not only because there's like a decent literature on people's responses to methadone and how bad that is, but I think even as you were talking to participants that some participants disclose, even if they were taking methadone, they told people they were on Suboxone yeah. or sorry, buprenorphine as yeah. you were, you're referring to it because they like expected it would go better. So based on the literature, based on like some of our observations with participants, we all thought, okay, maybe people have better experiences with Mm -hmm. disclosing this new medication. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too is like you have to go to the methadone clinic and there's like a stigma Mm -hmm. with that and like waiting Mm -hmm. in the line every day versus Mm -hmm. Suboxone is easier, I guess, maybe just in Delaware for doctors. You can have like your primary care prescribed Suboxone in some cases. And so that kind of, I think carries a stigma whether or not you have to like show up publicly Mm -hmm. to a place every day and like wait in a line or is it like a private thing you can just do in your home, you know? 
Yeah, it has this kind of added component that right. you can't overdose on Suboxone versus methadone. So people feel comfortable giving you 30-day prescription right. versus showing up every day at 5 a.m. Right, right. for us <laughs> to interview them on their methadone. <laughs> as much as we love that. All right. So we had some reasons to study it. We had some expectations that people might have better reactions to one medication versus the other. What did you find, Dr. Brusso? Well, we did have some people who kind of confirmed our suspicions. They had the same suspicions that maybe buprenorphine or suboxone would be an easier disclosure. One of the quotes I have in front of me is a man I remember interviewing. He he was talking about disclosing to his friend uh, that he was using methadone. And for him, it wasn't necessarily telling his friend that he used heroin. That was the bad part. It was saying that he was treating this with methadone that uh, his friend like mm-hmm. hated. And so he said the methadone part was the hard part for me. He thought it was just basically heroin that I was taking. And let's say if I was on Suboxone or buprenorphine, I wonder what he would have said then. Mm. Uh, so we found that although we had these kind of sneaking suspicions and some people did disclose that they were on buprenorphine because they thought it would kind of fly better or it would be a bit easier or their their families would be more positive, they really kind of look the same. Families just seem to be misinformed about both of these medications equally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was no good all around. Yeah. There was there were really not a lot of bright spots. No, there wasn't. And it seems like a lot of these stigmatizing reactions were born from this just misinformed responses that were coming behind these medications. And so it was definitely a big learning experience for me to see how people approach them. You know, like I'm so familiar with these things. It was good to be able to see this misinformation and how it was stemming from these medications. And they were very similar. So we had a few different areas that they were the same. We had a lot of people talking about their family members or friends saying either methadone or this buprenorphine suboxone is just the same thing as a drug. Yep. It's kind of this government subsidized. Yeah, substituting drug one taking. drug for another, I think, has to be the line we heard the most. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it really does. It really does kind of carry these preconceptions yeah. of like seediness. So a lot of people saying, well, you know, my mom said methadone's the same thing as heroin. I'm basically substituting because now I'm on legal heroin. Mm-hmm. And I feel just as stigmatized now that I'm getting treatment and doing better versus using. And you can see how that may impact your behaviors going forward. I mean, what a huge leap you made to go out there to get treatment, to better yourself. You're waking up at 5 a.m. Yep. before work. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, like the Every hoops day. you have to jump Every through day. to get there. Like it's not a walk in the park. It's not like, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To get accosted by us as soon as we <laughs> <laughs> just swept into yeah. a closet in the this back of the, the room with a recorder. In the morning. <laughs> Tell <laughs> us all your secrets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think about that a lot too, just how hard it is to be on this medication, how you really have to want this for your health and your well-being and then when you go to tell someone about it for that to be the reaction that you get, I mean, it's, it's just that 
reading those is is like super heartbreaking. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, how many people who have a, a similar chronic disease yeah. out there with cancer or something? If they told their parents, like, I'm getting treatment, I'm on chemotherapy, and yeah. that's like the thing. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. No. Why can't you just quit the cancer cold turkey? Why can't you just quit it? <laughs> yeah. Just seriously, quit it. that's what it's this. Yeah. yeah. I disclose to people that I'm on a pretty heavy duty medication. That, you know, I have to go in once a month and get an infusion, which, you know, is how they deliver chemo as well. And then I'm always in the position of like managing other people's like emotions about it and they feel sorry for me or they want to like help. And I'm like, usually this leads me to joking around that like, don't worry, I'm just getting infused with a superhero power and waiting for it to merge. Like I have to manage them, but I can't imagine having an experience where I'm telling people and they're just like, well, why can't you just get your immune system to stop attacking itself on its own? (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that I found is exactly what Carly was mentioning, kind of the building and coming into methadone. So uh, a lot of people mentioned the treatment atmosphere was highly stigmatized and just just going into that building or being seen outside of it was something they didn't, they didn't want to do. Like, Somebody gave me a quote that their friend felt like, you know, every day they're lining up to get their fix or something mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, another woman had disclosed to her daughter that she was coming to this building, getting methadone. And her her daughter said that she doesn't want her making friends there. Don't think that she's going to fit in. She doesn't fit in with the classless people going to this clinic. And and please, God, don't bring them home because they'll steal all our stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> so yeah. that's something where you're like, oh, okay, I'm in this crowd. And this building signifies exactly that to everyone. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why would I want to go to that treatment center? Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, there's no better way to make you feel like shit for Mm. going in and getting medical care for yourself to, yeah. And that even translated on them. Like some people were like, yeah, this is such a sad way to spend government money. Mm -hmm. Just weird if you hear that constantly from other people to just kind of internalize that. Right? Yeah. uh, Like you're not worth the help. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think this qualitative study in particular has me super fired up to figure out how to do more work with families in Delaware. Um, And because, you know, our next step for this project is to help people navigate disclosure, which we can come back to. But more than anything, this has me fired up about like, let's do some light education about medication. And you can only go up, essentially, with what we were seeing. I did not expect so many people to not know and to not be willing to learn what these kind of medications were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I should say earlier, I said, I kind of framed it as like a short-term thing, like transition into recovery. But I should also Mm. just say for folks who are listening and who may not be familiar with these medications, that some people are on these for a long time in the same way that I'm on a medication for a chronic illness for a long time and are rocking it. So if you have a family member who is on one of these medications and has been on them for years, like A plus to them for being in recovery and for being able to, you know, stick with their meds and... So it's it's not for everybody like a medication that you take for a short term. So for some people, they take it longer, and that's totally fine. Yep. So you know, it's between them and their doctor. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. their doctor yeah. does yeah. more than their family. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just wanted to do that real time fact check. <laughs> so, 
Okay. So that was study one. So study two focused a bit on looking at predictors or things that were associated with or related to concurrent opioid use during treatment, right? So you were looking at why are some people continuing to use opioids even when they are in treatment or receiving medications for this opioid use disorder? And so they may be using heroin or fentanyl or something else. So what did you find for that study? Yes. So that one was really interesting. I don't think we expected to have so many people kind of readily admit or talk to us about how they're still using heroin while Mm -hmm. they're also taking their methadone, which is another thing that is super stigmatizing. Right. Mm -hmm. It can also be a predictor of eventually just kind of dropping out of treatment if you're using a heroin that's eventually going to kind of win out as a better option. Why yeah. are you even doing treatment? Yeah. Well, because you don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. and yeah, show up and exactly. get judged by everyone in your life. To, <laughs> yeah. You know, use heroin. So, yeah, like, your mom told you yeah. that you're replacing one drug for another. So, why not just so stick with not? your one drug? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, it was good to kind of look at that as our outcome. And in looking at that, we kind of wanted to see if some of these other factors like stigma and Depressive symptoms, gender outness, which is kind of the degree to which you are out or tell people that you're living with an opioid use disorder, whether these had an impact on this concurrent opioid use over time. So for this study, actually, we found some interesting things. One thing we found that I think is pretty new is that OUD outness had basically people who were more out about their OUD actually had a negative impact on their concurrent opioid use. So basically, people who told more people that they're in recovery or that they have a history of opioid use, yep, that they were engaging in less concurrent opioid use over time. Yeah, sometimes we always joke around like positive and negative is hard Mm -hmm. to interpret. (laughs) So, But yeah, no, I mean, basically, that's by some indications, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But yeah, so this association between like if more people in your life know about your recovery or your opioid use disorder, you're probably going to be engaging in less opioid use yeah. while you're in treatment. So yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting one. Yeah, and that's one we hadn't really found before and mm-hmm. really just kind of highlight how these social relationships can be highly protective and things yeah. that really help yep. us in recovery. And then we also found that those who are going into their disclosure anticipating more stigma or expecting that their brother who they're about to tell is really going to stigmatize their methadone use or their treatment or whatever it is, those who had this higher kind of amount of anticipated stigma are engaging in more concurrent opioid use. Mm So more stigma, more concurrent opioid use, um, we can clearly see this connection between the two. Yeah. And I think there's probably, uh, you know, there could be a lot of different reasons for that. You did control for like the severity of someone's opioid use disorder, which helps a little bit with, you know, it, it, it could be that people who have a more severe opioid use disorder are more worried about stigma and those people are also engaging in more concurrent opioid use but you did you did control for that a little bit yeah. if it's a stigma process it could be that if you're thinking about disclosing to someone which is when we caught people 
and you're worried that they're going to treat you negatively, then you're stressed out about that. It's super stressful to be walking around waiting to have that conversation. And for some people, you know, their coping mechanism is substance use. So there could be a lot of things I think we have to keep digging into it. But that was a really interesting finding. We haven't seen that one before either. Yeah. And then, yeah, out of those other kind of controls or covariates, people who had greater severity or their opioid use was very severe. They had more concurrent opioid use, which we would expect. And then kind of the younger people had more concurrent opioid use, which is another thing. It kind yeah, of age. <laughs> the old age. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Age mattering. All right. It matters. All right. So then for your third study, you looked at associations between social support and commitment to sobriety. And so to set up for the methods here, people would disclose to somebody and then they would tell us about who that person is. So how close am I to that person? Has that person, you know, teaser used substances? Right, right. <laughs> and then they would also tell us about whether they received social support right. from the person after they after they disclosed. So you found this sort of Really interesting find and very nuanced finding, <laughs> but one that also like makes perfect sense. I mean, in the literature, just for folks like to know more broadly, when we study social support, we usually find social supports like always related to the good thing. Right, <laughs> so right. social support is re- related to living longer, to like taking your medication more in a lot of different chronic disease contexts. It's associated with like all sort of indicators of well-being. And so here we're looking at is social support related to more commitment to sobriety among folks in this population? Yeah. And it was definitely more of a nuanced look. We were kind of looking at social support from who? Yeah. (laughs) Social support from who? (laughs) Which relationships is this social support super beneficial Mm -hmm. or maybe not? And that was kind of what, what came back. One of the first things I think we looked at was kind of closeness. So If I'm disclosing to my brother and I'm very close with him, this closeness kind of really matters. So higher closeness, better commitment to sobriety, which is something you would kind of expect. But then we also had this more nuanced kind of three-way interaction, which was super delightful to interpret. (laughs) It's a complication station (laughs) for your dissertation. (laughs) You don't want to have a three-way interaction to interpret for your dissertation. But there you were. There I was, working my way through it between social support, closeness. And then the other thing that was in that interaction was looking at this disclosure recipient. So, you know, my brother, who I disclosed to, whether that person used substances. So it was kind of a combination of, okay, me and my brother have used before, and my brother may currently have a problem with opioid or some type of substance use disorder. So we wanted to know whether... We already knew closeness mattered and that better closeness with somebody getting social support from them was a good thing. But what about getting social support and being close with somebody who who is also using or you've used with? Is this is this always a good thing? Mm-hmm. So we found that typically being close to somebody who doesn't use is you know what we would expect. This is a good thing for us, having high closeness, getting social support from them. They don't use. This increases my commitment to sobriety 
over the time period that we looked. So that was something we would expect. But and, then, and you sort of, sorry to interrupt, but you mm-hmm. sort of described this person as like, yeah, like maybe your brother who doesn't use substances, like maybe a family member, a close yeah. person hasn't used substances. Okay. Yeah. All right, continue. Brother Sorry. <laughs> so no, that's a good idea to put kind of labels on them. Yeah. Okay. So the next person we looked at would be this kind of low closeness, but they do use. So let's imagine maybe a friend, somebody in my peer support group or in my therapy group, they're in AA with me. We're not as close. We're not, you know, I don't know where they live and I go right. to their house and we hang out all the time. And they have used in the past, you know, they're currently dealing with some type of substance use disorder, but that closeness again kind of dictated how this relationship went. So for them, interacting with them, getting social support from them was also a good thing, which was kind of surprising. But in going back and kind of wondering over this relationship, we figured, all right, well, maybe it's because this somebody you're not as close to, they're not somebody who... Uh, their behaviors really kind of impact your life. They're just there to give you social support and give you enough social support so that you can kind of enhance your commitment to sobriety. Yeah. I think when you describe, because this was a counterintuitive finding, we were like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, wanted to get rid of it. Yeah. But when you landed on thinking that this is probably someone who you know from AA, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics, or Narcotics Anonymous, NA, like from a recovery community right, is yeah. where you sort of landed at. And that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Like this is someone who I probably am not going to necessarily disclose as being super close to yet. I mean, maybe you will become, but yeah, receiving social support from someone in in AA or NA is, it should definitely be increasing your commitment to sobriety over time. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So those are two instances that we really want, especially with the person who we're close with, they don't use, this was a great person to disclose to. They had all the things that could help you with your commitment to your sobriety. And then this kind of final pathway or interaction that we found was people of high closeness. So let's say my brother again, but my brother does use. He's used in the past. He's currently living with a substance use disorder, getting social support from my brother who I'm very close to and he uses was a bad thing. It lowered my commitment to sobriety over time, which made a lot of sense when you think about it. You know, maybe I'm always dropping in on my brother. I'm hanging out with him. His behaviors are kind of influencing me. Maybe I stop in one day and he's using, you know, so it it does make sense that we saw this very minute difference between types of social support and which relationship differences might matter. I think intuitively it makes so much sense that, you know, in any community, but particularly this community where people's social networks, like the people that they're connected with might really be shifting as they go into recovery, you know, transitioning from people who might also have substance use disorders to maybe more of a recovery community or reconnecting with family or other folks. That one makes so much sense. Like, and it's something I can see where you would like, look at that data and be like, what is happening? (laughs) If you don't, you know, if everyone in your life knows about your substance use disorder and you don't have the luxury of these new relationships, like these people kind of sort of have this idea about you, you think, and it can be such a dark cloud to go into a place like NA or AA and have someone that you're not really close to might be like the look because it's like you don't have any eggs in that basket. If they really give you this terrible stigmatizing response, it's like, who cares? Who are you? I'll go to a different meeting. Like, you know, 
So it does make sense, but yeah, it's not something I, I think I would have thought to look for. Well, Dr. Brousseau, I got to say, this is the last time I will quiz you on the results of your dissertation. So pass. <laughs> yeah, well done. And I mean, I'm always like, I think that these results are really tricky results, like yes. especially, I mean, for folks who are familiar with statistics who might be listening, like interpreting again, that three-way interaction is is really challenging. And I'm just like really impressed with how you're able to talk about it in like real world language and layer in some like examples to try to hook in what might be going on there. She so. makes it look easy. She yeah, does. I no, know. that's a thing, dude. Like <laughs> Natalie has always made things look easy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sometimes things can, you can get frazzled, but for oh, the most yeah. part, you're like, yeah, whatever. Sure. Yeah. Not a big deal. It's true. Like, yeah, oh, I'll just do it. Back. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, sure. There was never like that high energy doctoral student, like, oh, what yeah, if I don't yeah, do yeah. it? And like all these different, like Natalie's yeah, like, no, true. no, no, it's going to work out. Everything's fine. Uh-huh. Like, it feels so manageable to see Natalie do it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's because she's so good at it, though. Very good at denying my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a little counterintuitive, but I wanted to ask, now that you're at the end of the program and, you know, you have your PhD, you did it, you're a doctor, you know, one of like 2% of the population who has a PhD, I was wondering if there's any like advice or anything you would tell your former self. I mean, Carly and I though have an impression that you've always been fine. (laughs) Maybe never needed advice, but is there anything you would say to little Natalie or other little Natalie starting their program? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things, this is just for me in general, was that I was on the right path because I think that I just, I, I don't think a lot of people go into their PhD program not being certain, but I was kind of like on the fence of like, oh, I don't know. Is this the thing I want to do for the next big commitment of my life? Mm -hmm. No, there's a lot of doubt. I mean, a lot of people don't make it. And I think that that's part of the process. And I think you also like don't really know what you're getting into when you start a PhD program. Mm -hmm. So I went in wanting to be like a teaching professor. I was like, I want to teach. I want summers off. I want to like... Joke's on you. I know, right? Yeah, Yeah, we've come come a far away. (laughs) And now I'm like, science forever. Science all of the minutes. Yeah, science all summer. All right. Well, I like that. So what's next? What's next? So I'm going to go work. With one of our other episode guests, uh, Lisa <laughs> and Seth, which I, that's one I listened to. It was great. Seth Kalichman. Sure you did. Lisa Eaton. Lisa, yeah, Lisa Eaton and Seth, Seth Kalichman, big deal HIV researchers. Big, big deal. Yeah. At uh, University of Connecticut. So I'm doing postdoc there, which is going to be awesome. I've already worked with them a little bit during my last few years here on a grant they're doing, they're doing a training grant with NIH. So a a T32 it's called, which is very kind of proper sounding, but basically (laughs) it's all about training new HIV and stigma researchers. So worked with them, got to love them just like (laughs) you guys probably did in your interviews and Val, you've worked with them before. Yeah. They've been stuck with me for a while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, one thing I didn't know is that Seth is not about Having postdoc students, he is. Oh, I didn't know that. So you have snuck by this, then? Okay. He said his he's only ever had one. Eileen Pipitan. Yeah, Yeah, and he loved her. I mean, what she so she was in my cohort. We'll have to get her on for next season. Uh. 
Yeah. She was incredible. Wow. I didn't realize that you are, you are the second postdoc following Dr. Pipitan. Okay. He said no pressure. (laughs) You guys are equally awesome. And that, uh, that's the reason he's never had a postdoc because he never thought one. Oh, I lead was too good. (laughs) Oh God. Whoa. (laughs) So great to Yeah. Right. Like no Uh, pressure. Thanks. No, but I mean, he's been talking about this postdoc for a year. So it's a lot of enthusiasm. That's awesome. Yeah. They are great. Well, Dr. Brousseau, you are just so super stinking smart. I can't, you know, it's hard for me to imagine you not feeling like you knew that you were on the right path because I don't know, at least from me where Carly and I are sitting, it's you're, you're like a fish in water with this stuff. You're so natural at it. You're really, really good at it. You're so talented. You're super duper hardworking. Yes. Keep going. I... (laughs) I cannot wait to see all the amazing things that you're going to do in your career. So yes. <laughs> and we have been way too spoiled having you in our lab. Like Aww. too no, spoiled. But seriously though. Like I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I get beat up. I does that have to call <laughs> yeah. you Valerie. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, you are. It's not going to go very <laughs> no, well. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to warn you right now with everybody listening that I am very much already looking forward to embarrassing you at future conferences. I'm going to do it total dance mom style. I'm going to, I think you need to like get ready for all of the signs, the t-shirts, the banners, cheering, the whole thing. I'm going to bring Carly. We're just going to sit in the back and go and like full out the jackets made. Yes. Right now, like Dr. Brousseau on <laughs> yeah. the back. Full out like dance. The pink ladies. Moms. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I need As- a fair amount of glitter. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. We'll do all of the glitter. Right. No problem. Seems like a good ask. Yeah. Cause I think we're, we're forever going to be your biggest fans. Yes. Dr. Brousseau. So thank you so much for joining us, talking about your dissertation and good luck with all the things. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And this is going to be my fifth episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the Stigma and Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware for their help with the podcast, including Sarah Lopez, Molly Marine, James Wallace, and Ashley Robert. Thanks to City Girl for the music. As always, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Sex, Drugs, Science, and stay up to date on new episodes by clicking subscribe. Thanks to all of you for listening.